As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Neeraj Gunsagar. He is a BS class of 98, Hasi. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sean. Great to be here. You're also the president and CEO of Byte. Yes, I am. <laughs> Before we jump into all that, can you just tell us a little bit about what Byte is? Yeah, so Byte is a direct-to-consumer clear aligner company. So our goal and mission is to change the world one smile at a time. And what we do is we make the concept of orthodontia and teeth straightening more accessible and affordable to communities around the U.S. and very soon around the world, because the current infrastructure of oral care is very much predetermined for wealthier, upper-income folks. And we believe that oral care and actually overall health care should be democratized in a way where everybody has the access to these kind of procedures. Couldn't agree more. When I went to go get my Invisalign done years ago, the process was so automated that I was wondering, why is this still so expensive? <laughs> Yeah, right. so it's just patent protection and the ability to sell it through orthodontia and insurance and, and all the complications that you probably all hear about in the healthcare world. Same thing happens in dental. And, and so we're trying to, since the patents expired of Invisalign six, seven, eight years ago, just like you see with Hims and Hers and Roman and those folks, we're trying to make these products more accessible because the reality is teeth straightening is not just a vanity thing. It's actually a healthcare thing. If you have crooked teeth, you know, food gets stuck, you have higher rates of gingivitis, heart disease, diabetes, a bunch of stuff that's that people don't really know in, let's say, lower income communities, but they should have access to. So that's kind of the real yeah. mission of Byte. I love it. Before we go back to Byte, love to go back in time and hear about you, about your origin story. You know, where are you from? Uh, where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I am from Saratoga, California. So in the South Bay, Silicon Valley, the heart of Silicon Valley. Roku was started in Saratoga and Netflix is in Los Gatos. So I kind of bordered those two towns. My father moved to California in the, I would say, early 70s, late 60s. He was a semiconductor guy from India and he worked at Fairchild. So Fairchild is like the godfather of true Silicon Valley. And we grew up there and that's where we, we spent most of our time, you know, as, as children. I was born and raised in Saratoga. And then, I, as you know, I, I went to Berkeley. What did you study at Berkeley? I went to the Haas School of Business and I, I studied business and I really, really enjoyed it, right? I mean, all the classes there. I mean, I went there actually, I wanted to play baseball. So I played baseball in high school and then I tried out in the freshman team over at Cal as a recruited walk-on. And I threw out my shoulder and I realized very quickly that I had reached my ceiling of baseball while most of the players there were still at their floors. And I quickly focused on academia and studies. And as you know, Haas undergrad is a very difficult, I imagine it's the same way now, it's a very difficult school to get into. I think a lot of people in the undergrad program try to get in and it's many fail. And once I got in, it was truly, truly, truly a game-changing experience because you really got focused on business in a differentiated way from an undergrad perspective. And back in the late 90s, investment banking was the thing to do, right? Investment banking was like Google or Facebook or wherever it was, you know, five, 10 years ago from a from an undergraduate perspective. And so yeah. In order to compete against the East Coast Ivy League schools from a West Coast perspective, 
you know, Haas really helped level the playing field there. You went to a uh, very famous shop, at least in the finance world, uh, right out of college, DLJ. Can you tell us about your time there <laughs> in leverage finance For sure. as so, an investment banker? So I think it's, it's best to rewind my junior to senior year summer. I worked in investment banking at UBS. So I had a UBS summer job as a summer analyst. And the focus was on technology. And back then, technology meant equity offering. So purely secondary IPOs, you know, equity financings for software companies I'd focused on back then. And what I realized was it was mainly just pitch books and comp analysis, meaning comparing other companies to the company you're taking public or you're doing a secondary form to find out valuation. And it wasn't really that challenging. And so as I went back to my senior year, I wanted to do more complex finance, right? So I wanted to really understand how to leverage the balance sheet in a unique way, you know, either through high yield or equity offerings and, and have a full kind of capital suite and capital efficiency solution and advise companies on that. And back then, as you had mentioned, Sean, DLJ was the king of high yield and very complex bankruptcies and stuff like that. And as I interviewed with Goldman and Morgan and everybody like that, the DLJ guys I just connected with a little bit better. And it was in the San Francisco office. And I also wanted to have a really fun senior year. So I was, I think, the first person in our senior class to accept a job in like November Wow. at DLJ. And, and I kind of just took off the rest of the year. So <laughs> that was that. That's amazing. What'd you do after that? I know you were kind of in banking for two years. It's funny how nothing has changed in that in that sense for an analyst. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. So at DLJ, I really focused on some cool transactions. So I worked on the bankruptcy of a company called Iridium. If people remember the satellite company, they had raised about eight nine billion dollars worth of debt, and so we had to restructure that. And it was global debt. It wasn't just like you know a bunch of shops here in the U.S. It was. Saudi government, it was the Chinese government because everybody wanted access to satellite. But what they didn't realize was cellular would take off very quickly because as more and more base stations were, were laid across the US, coverage became a lot easier, especially with CDMA technology, which is what Qualcomm had spearheaded through their CEO and founder, Erwin Jacobs. And so in 2000, I got the bug to do venture because obviously 2000 was like the hottest year in the world. And then it turned into not the hottest year in the world. But I caught the venture bug and I also understood that I, if I wanted to get on the buy side, the principal investing side, I'd probably have to go. Back then, it wasn't nearly as ubiquitous as it is now, right? So I had to go probably take a, a different route coming from banking. And so I went down to San Diego and helped found Qualcomm's Venture Capital Group. I was really interested in wireless technology back then, super interested. In fact, I still remember I was a bit insecure about not being an engineer at our technologist, because as you know, Qualcomm is a heavy, heavy, heavy engineering shop. They have packed walls everywhere. I still remember this. I bought CDMA for Dummies. There was actually a book, CDMA for Dummies, and I read it and I started really understanding how code division multiplexing worked and how it was comparable to TDMA. And I, I guess my father's engineering brain came out. And I remember going to a couple of meetings because we were looking at early stage companies and my bosses at the time, I started like really drilling into the engineers on like how they were looking at multiplexing and how they were doing base stations versus, you know, MSM chips, which are their mobile chips. And my, my guys looked at me going like, you're a banker. And so advice for everybody, those dummy books could, can get you pretty far. Now you're not going to go and start, you know, designing chips or anything like that, but you can be you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty nasty, pretty dangerous. Pretty dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did that 
for quite some time. But what I realized, to be honest with you, and, and these are some of the early learnings I had is, and this is why I really truly loved banking as a first job out of undergrad is, and I did talk about this, but but DLJ was also considered like the hardest working shop. So there's probably, you know, horror stories from people about, you know, 100 hour weeks were pretty regular. But as a 21, 22, 23 year old, you can kind of handle that. Like it's, it's just like, oh, it's your first job out of, out of school. Like this is the way it is. But what you realize that most other jobs are not like that. And in fact, a great story at Qualcomm was I started on a Monday and my boss at the time, who was a really, really interesting guy, really smart guy, but kind of a hard ass, but him and I have still stayed very close. He gave me a project, like look at this space and, you know, analyze it and give me some spreadsheets and all these things. And by Monday evening, I had finished it, finished the entire thing. It was pretty easy for me. And I, I remember going into his office. I said, hey, you know, here's the assignment. He's like, what assignment? I said, oh, the one we talked about this morning in our Monday meeting. He's like, what? You finished that? That was due in two weeks. <laughs> and it was funny. I, we sat through it. He's like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I wanted. I'm glad the way you, you looked at this. And what I realized very quickly was I had to understand different worlds now going forward because certain big and what i realized is big companies are not where i where like my sweet spot was at the time like big companies move very slow in comparison to kind of the agile workforce of either a banking or a startup or whatever it may be and so i really did that for 3 years to enjoy buy side investing but to be honest with you Sean it, it was kind of like a vacation in San Diego for a couple of years with really great great knowledge base and understanding cuz you're at a tier you know a blue chip company but it did get boring and I also realized just from my DLJ experience that I wanted to do later stage, more complex transactions. Like I was more of a buyout guy or a growth stage guy. And then I was also debating whether to go get my MBA. Because by the way, everybody did MBAs back then. It was the thing, two years banking, maybe get a job, then go do your MBA. And then in 2004, I was about to put together applications that I was interviewing as well. Because I, I was like, if I can get a post MBA job, like I don't need an MBA. And everybody who was doing MBAs were like, oh, it's about the networking. It's about the networking. And I was like, listen, whatever. And I ended up getting a really, really great job as the first kind of associate of a boutique, newly created tech buyout shop called Garnett and Helfrich Capital. It was started by two venture capitalists who saw that there was a gap back then of a bunch of the M&A activity that happened in 98 to 2000. Now with the downturn, everybody remembers the 2001 downturn in the tech space. Well, all that, all of those companies that had been acquired were now somewhat being orphaned inside of the big corporates. And so these guys on the venture side, and we brought in a partner of mine, a guy by the name of Mike Guthrie, who's still very close. He's actually the CFO of Roblox now. He was the TPG, he got brought in from TPG. And him and I worked together and we basically carved out businesses from big corporates. We were the first real company to focus on carve-outs back in 2003, 2004 in tech space. So we carved out a business out of what was called Computer Associates then, but CA. We carved out a business out of Nortel. We ended up selling that, I think, to Dell. And then, or no, we, we carved out a business out of a big Taiwanese conglomerate called Wise, W-Y-S-E. Sold that business to Dell, actually. Sold another business to IBM. And we basically just carved these things out and created new infrastructure for them and new in equity incentive cultures and the strategic would sometimes take equity back with us. And I was the only guy there kind of running a lot of the deals with Mike and David and Terry, the founders were doing a lot of deal flow for us. And it was a really great experience. I mean, I traveled the world. I ended up looking at businesses in Germany, at Infineon, Asian businesses. We looked at businesses in India. We looked at building offshore stuff in India. And that was that. Like that was, that was the private equity side of it. But you continued down that journey, it seems like. 
I did. I mean, I can keep going. I don't know how you want to take this. I mean, I can get us all the way to bite if, if, if you want to do that. So let's let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, as I ended up at Garnett and Helfrich Capital, I spent a lot of time in India because we wanted to build back then. India was a really great, interesting back office for technology support and systems. And, and for I, context, this is mid 2000s. This right? is 2005, 2006. And so my brother, actually, who was a UCLA undergrad and a Stanford law guy, he moved out to India in 2001, downturn, and he started an animation company. And so he was there wow. with his wife. And, and every time I'd go out there, I'd stay in Bombay with them. And I ended up saying, you know what? I kind of want to try India. India seems like a cool place. And so I joined Matrix Partners, which was a big VC firm in the US. They were building a presence out in India. And I transitioned out of Garden and Helfrich Capital and I joined Matrix in India. I moved to Mumbai in 2007. And as I tell everybody, I realized very quickly, just because I'm Indian doesn't mean I want to live in India. And I think within a year, I had made the decision that I kind of wanted to be back in California. And I moved back. I actually moved back in the mid-2008 timeframe. And I had accepted a job at a growth equity VC firm, a very famous one out here in California. But as we were literally flying back, I took a week in Dubai and the market crashed and they rescinded all their offers. So I came back to the US in mid-2008 with the downturn happening and I didn't have a job. And it was a really, really, really unique time for me because I didn't have a job. Nobody was hiring, especially in private equity and venture and all these things. And so I ended up partnering up with my old partner at Garnett and Helfrich Capital. He had since moved on to another firm, Mike Guthrie, and we actually started to just consult for a couple of years. We consulted a bunch of public company CEOs on M&A advisory. We were trying to do back then this concept of SPACs. Uh, was a little bit different here. We were looking at doing these things called search funds. I don't know if you know search funds. So we, oh, yeah. were, we were looking, putting together search funds at the time and trying to see if we could flip those into into SPACs. And so we had a couple of interesting ideas. Actually, in 2009, we wanted to buy a couple of assets that you know we could have bought for nothing. And then those ended up selling for billions of dollars later. We just couldn't get the capital behind us. We we're going to put some of our own capital, but nobody was writing checks at all. And so I did that for literally almost 18 months. And I got married in combination with that. I had my first kid and I was just a hus- I was just hustling and getting deal flow. And then finally, Mike uh, was like, listen, you know, I think I'm going to take this job as the CFO of a company called TrueCar down in Los Angeles because I think it's time, you know, let's go, let's go try to run something. Because we kind of realized that you sit on boards a lot at a young age without any real experience in operations and you give a lot of advice, but you've never kind of done it. And he never sat in the chair of a CEO or an entrepreneur. It's a really different chair. And so he became CFO and he had thought they were just going to go public right away. That was the goal was to bridge to to them go public. But I think the first week he started, he realized, whoa, this company was not ready to go public. A lot of infrastructure needed to work on a lot of a lot of things. So he called me up and said, hey, listen, do you want to do a consulting gig down here and see if you like it? And so in January of 2012, I flew down to LA to be a consultant and realized very quickly that they needed more than that. It was a real growth restructuring of a tech company, which is unique because back then you could grow at all costs, but if you didn't have the right business model or if you didn't have the right KPI metrics, LTV CAC was still like, like nobody really understood it. And it ended up being like seven years, eight years at the company. And so I came in, I started out running finance and ops as like a, like a VP of finance or something like that. And Mike was the CFO. We ended up turning the business around. It did about 70 million and lost 40 million of EBITDA in 2012 when we came on. 
Next year did 110 and 10 positive, right? So we flipped the business pretty quickly to focus on the right KPIs. I started to get my hands dirty in all different parts of the business because it was just an analytical focus rather than just like a hunch focus. And we took it public with Goldman Sachs in 2014, raised almost got to a $2 billion valuation at one point. I ended up transitioning to run marketing. So I ended up becoming the CMO of the company because we had built a really data-driven culture there focused on customer acquisition, TV metrics. We were one of the first companies to really understand how linear TV could result in traffic bumps on your website. And it was just fun. It was like a, it was like a math problem. I hired a bunch of bankers and, and hedge fund guys that wanted to transition over to corporate. And they knew there would be an income drop, but they would learn certain different skill sets. But that was the kind of folks we wanted. Once again, we're one of the first real introductions of biz ops, business operations. We sound, somebody labeled that later, but we're like, oh my God, we had built the biz ops team back in 11 and 12. And that was that and did that for quite some time. I was actually just going to ask, what was it like going from finance to marketing? <laughs> That's uh, from literally from the CRO of the company to the CMO. Yeah. So the titles are an interesting thing. Like I could have asked for whatever title I wanted, to be honest with you, because yeah. we were involved in so many different parts of the business. But the CMO is an interesting title today, right? Because marketing has become a really, really, really kind of 360 thing that you got to focus on when you think about a company, right? So you've got acquisition, like TV acquisition, radio acquisition, digital acquisition, Google, Facebook, Instagram, all these different things. But it all then flows into a, a funnel, right? Like a consumer internet funnel. And that's all math. So all that math ends up happening and you got to end up making sure that all that quant works in a, in a funnel, right? And so when we did that, it ended up realizing that, wow, we should really help the brand marketing side understand their math around those things. And because on the biz op side, and eventually it was like, well, I should just run marketing because yeah. we want to be more data-driven marketing from that perspective and then go from there. So it was a easy transition. And I had a chief brand officer, so I wasn't like doing creative direction. I would give my insights and we would do a bunch of A-B testing across all the different platforms. But it was kind of a natural transition from where I sat. That makes sense. I see what you mean. Being very ROI driven on from a number standpoint on how marketing works. Yeah, because I normally think of marketing as just being creative work. You do. Everybody does, but it's not. It's really not. It's becoming more and more ROAS focused. And, you know, even at Byte, as we get into Byte in a little while, like, we are super driven on making sure that we've got attribution right, we've got all the different channels right. Because, and what we'll talk about this, I have a real strong opinion about the monopolistic nature of Facebook and Google and all these platforms that, you know, become almost taxes on the internet when you try to reach customers. But I understand their business models. So you've got to make sure that if you're buying CPMs and you're buying CPCs, that you're really fine tuning the math around what's the creative, what's the landing page, what are the funnel economics of this. Especially when you're, you're trying to sell a $2,000 product like we do at Byte. Before we go there, though, we do have an interesting story with the Lakers. You have to tell that story. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, Sean. I was mentioning this to Sean earlier. So, I, you know, as we started to uh, you know, buy more media, right? So a good friend of mine who's actually in the podcasting space and the guy by the name of Norm Pattis, who owns Podcast One, he owns the, the four courtside seats next to the Lakers bench. So if you see his face and you're a Lakers fan or you're an NBA fan, you'll, you'll recognize who he is. And he had offered at the beginning of the year, and this was, you know, during Kobe Bryant's last year, he had offered me a couple seats to sit with him during games. And he's like, well, would you want the last game of the year with the Utah Jazz? And I, not knowing that it was Kobe's last game and all these things, I was like, yeah. oh, I'll take the last game of the year. And as it became Kobe's last game, it became a bigger and bigger deal, right? I mean, it was going to be Kobe Bryant's last game. And so I had two tickets. He had given me two tickets. I was taking my CFO, Mike Guthrie, again, he was the CFO there. 
And I get a call the day of the game, and it's from Norm. And Norm says, hey, Neeraj, I got some good news and I got some bad news. And he said, the good news is Shaquille O'Neal wants to go to the game with us. And he said, the bad news is he needs one of your seats. And he's like, it's up to you. You can do whatever you want. And so I thought about it for about a millisecond. And I ended up calling my CFO and go, actually going into Mike's office and said, Mike, I, I got some good news and I got some bad news. The good news is, is that Shaquille O'Neal wants to go with us to the game. And the bad news is he wants your seat. And so Mike very quickly said, hey, dude, go with Shaquille O'Neal. Are you kidding me? Like, that's Kobe's last game. They're boys. Like, it's Shaq and Kobe, right? You're going to be sitting in the middle of this whole thing. So we ended up going to the game. And if everybody is a basketball fan, once again, or a Kobe fan, you know, he scored 61 points the last game of his career. Uh, and we he all won watched the, it. Yeah, he won the <laughs> game. But if you watched it, you'll see me next to Shaquille O'Neal the entire game. But what was fascinating was before the game, Kobe comes up to Shaq. I'm, I'm like literally sitting in the middle of this like epic conversation. I, somehow if we can NFT this, I, I think I'd make some money here. But, you know, Kobe says, how many do you want me to score? And Shaq says 40. And Kobe goes like this. And then I yell 50, like I'm just part of the gang. Like, and they're like, yeah. you know, shut up, dude. What, what are you talking? And then, <laughs> you know, we're just kind of battering the entire game. It's like me, Shaq, and Kobe, and me in my own mind, but, you know, it's Shaq and Kobe, right? And he scores 61. And after the game, you know, we're all on the court together, right? Because courtside seats get to sit on the court. And this is, you know, obviously once in a lifetime type experience, but. Like, I'm getting hugged by, you know, everybody. Rick Fox is there. Shaq's hugging me. Kobe even hugs me. I'm like, whoa, this is like... And I'm not... By the way, listen, I'm from the Bay Area. I'm a Warriors fan. So yeah, uh, I'm, not even, I'm not even a Lakers fan. But it was just one of these surreal, surreal moments. Like, I've got pictures on it. I was on Jimmy Kimmel's show and all these shows because they showed the screen yep. of Shaq and Kobe talking. And I'm like in every photo. So, I like, even high school buddies of mine are texting me during the game. Like, I haven't talked to them in 20 years. They're like... Is that you next to Shaq? And it was just, it was a crazy moment. It's like my five minutes of fame or 15 minutes of fame. That's unreal. So the moral of the story is don't be the CFO, be the CMO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) If you want good tickets, you should always be the CMO. (laughs) All right. That's a great segue into your role at Byte as president and CEO. How did you get from TrueCard to to Byte? Interesting story. So in 2018, the founders of Byte, a guy by the name of Scott Cohen and Blake Johnson, actually really good friends of mine. Actually, I would call them even brothers now. But Scott, our kids went to the same school in the Pacific Palisade, Santa Monica area. Mm-hmm. And he just pinged me like through a network at the school and said, hey, listen, you guys were really able to market properly at TrueCar and build a brand within this category. How did you do that? Mm-hmm. And I took them through some of the stuff we did with partners and affiliates that was really unique. I took them through you know, our like really analytical driven focus. And I think midway through the call, at least or the meeting in my office, Scott tells me now, he he realized very quickly that this was like I was the guy they wanted to run this business when they got to a certain stage. Scott and Blake are very well known to be early stage guys, but also humble and knowledgeable enough to know that they're not the right guys to take a company to the growth side of this. Yeah. And I think seven, eight months later, as, as I started to think about new things after True Car, I came into Scott's offices at Byte. And it was one of these surreal moments. I had done all my diligence on the category. I knew it was a big category. I knew I wanted to do something. Whatever I did next, I wanted to make sure it, it helped the world in some way, like it had an impact on either people or the environment or something. I, I had that yearning. And the younger kids all have it today. But, you know, the bankers of the 90s, you know, we didn't we didn't really think about those things. And I was in the offices at Byte. Scott had stepped out for a second and I could hear a woman. She was crying in our Byte sales team. And I went over as anybody about, you know, being recruited to be the president and CEO. I, I just tapped her on the shoulder and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? 
And she said, and then I could hear a woman on the other end of the phone crying as well. And I said, oh, God, this has got to be an HR issue. And she said, no, no, no. This is just another one of these incredible consumer journey stories. This was a mother whose daughter had actually tried to commit suicide twice. And the daughter had tried to commit suicide twice because she was bullied and made fun of by the way her teeth looked. And you don't think about it a lot. I mean, I now mental health and mental health awareness has become bigger and bigger. But people are going through a lot of stuff and people bully people for a bunch of reasons in late high school or whatever it may be. And like we hear countless times before, customer success stories on Bite is this mother lived in a county without an orthodontist. So only 40% of U.S. counties have orthodontists, which people don't wow. really know. No, and I know that. Yeah. And we, most of the listeners, most of us probably grew up in privileged areas with orthodontists. With orthodontists, where oral care and dentistry is all very important, which by the way, it is. And she couldn't afford all the other treatments that, you know, Sean, we mentioned as before, you think about Invisalign and braces, those things are expensive, Um, especially when you don't have insurance as well, right? So some folks have insurance, some folks don't, but you know, 50 or 60% don't have orthodontic coverage for sure. I mean, 80% of the country doesn't have orthodontic coverage. Oh, yeah. And she had discovered Byte. And we have a financing program called Byte Pay, 100% approval, because we want to make this concept more accessible and affordable. And her daughter was now, she discovered Byte. Her daughter was now in month five of treatment. She, her teeth were straightening. She was regaining her confidence. She was no longer getting bullied. And then the mother said something to me that really changed my idea. She said, you know, I finally have my daughter back. And I've got young boys. And if you're a parent or even if you're just anybody with understanding of mental health and empathy, it's like, that's a big deal. Like you don't know what you probably prevented there when it comes to confidence and health and happiness, which is what we kind of hold as a mission statement. And at that moment, I knew this was really interesting. And then as I unplugged even more interesting data out of this whole business, you start to see a bigger, bigger, bigger story here in regards to access to healthcare in general, right? So the U.S. population is about 65% white, 14% Latino, 12% black, and like 5 6% Asian, something like in that, that stage. But orthodontia work is like 80, 85, 90% white, like the people who are getting it done. And in the communities that we all know are privileged and you know higher income and all these things. And, and when you create a service or a product or an experience or whatever it may be, that's needed for the masses and it's accessible to the masses and it's affordable to the masses, your customer base should revert more to the mean or the average of the country, right? I mean, that's just how it Mm -hmm. should work. And when I realized that Byte, and one of the first things I did was try to analyze this, is literally 64%, 63% white, 15% Latino, 13% black, 5% Asian, 6% Asian. Like Literally, that's our customer base. And you start to realize like, wow, we as a country or we as a company and we as individuals need to figure out a way more and more to break down some of these historic barriers that that were created decades ago and figure out a way to make oral care healthcare more accessible and affordable to folks. And one of the things that that the industry didn't recognize, and, and I've become a big advocate of this, and I talk to dentists and orthodontists all the time, because a lot of them were fearful about what we're doing. We're actually bringing a whole new group of human beings so it's incremental to the industry to focus on oral care for the first time in their lives. And as a doctor or a dentist, that's kind of what you want to do. And I end up always comparing it to like the music industry. When Napster and stuff were started, the entire music industry fought it like crazy. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't realize was that everybody would eventually have a jukebox in their pocket. Yeah. And now the music industry, be it, you know, their songs or streaming, it's bigger than ever. And so when I speak more and more to dentists and orthodontists, I say, guys, listen, like we're trying to bring, if you think about banking the unbankable, like we're trying to build a bridge 
because you haven't been able to make a dent in who's how many people see dentists every year for decades. Like, why should the urban city or the African-American, you know, who lives in downtown or Compton or wherever, not get access to proper oral care? Like we should if we can do that in a DDC fashion with proper oversight, you know, let's get it done. Like, let's focus on that. And now it's starting to become more and more. We want to bring more dentists on the program. We want to make office an opportunity as well. But you have to kind of start the bridge now if you're really going to make a difference in the long run. I think what you just said is really, it's blowing my mind a little bit because you're absolutely right. Healthcare as a whole is a lot of things. And if you kind of overlook or just give up on one area, like oral health, which is feels like it's so easy to give up on, what else can you just skip out on as well, right? In terms of taking care of your body. As they say, you know, oral health well, at least I've read before, oral health leads to your gut health. It just leads to so many things, so many decisions that you make as well in terms of your lifestyle. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, for many listeners listening, they're probably thinking, oh, teeth straightening. It's, it's just for vanity, for aesthetic purposes. Tell us a little bit more about the health implications. So Sean, it's a great, great segue, right? So as we've started to understand the concepts around oral care and oral health. And I don't think the industry has really done a great job marketing itself. Like going to the dentist is like one of the things people dread more than anything in the world. But what they don't realize is that, you know, teeth straightening, like I mentioned to you earlier, it's not only a vanity thing, right? If your teeth are crooked, more food gets stuck in your teeth. That leads to gingivitis. It leads to cavities. It leads to diabetes and heart disease, a bunch of different stuff that people don't fully understand or appreciate. And then on top of that, there's the interesting vanity-focused things that make an impact. You know, as I spoke to Bumble and some of the dating sites as well, they've done a lot of analysis on this. Like women, I think it's through a survey that Bumble or Match did, won't go on a second date with a guy if they have bad teeth. 72% of women said they wouldn't do that. Job interviewers, you probably don't want to say it out loud, but you subconsciously or consciously, it makes an impression, right? If that person doesn't take care of their teeth... How are they going to take care of this job, right? And so all of those things lead to one thing, right? Confidence. Like if you think about mental health and mental, you know, and self-care and all these things, it's really about building confidence. It doesn't need to be ego. It just needs to be, I feel good about who I am. And this is a really important thing. I mean, we've been trying to understand this from a mental health perspective. And can we ladder oral care under self-care and different things like that? Because self-care has become really big with the pandemic, right? You look at the boom of Peloton, at home, exercise, all these different things. We want to be at the forefront of that. Like we want people to spend nearly as much time thinking through their oral care needs as they do some of their health care needs. If you look at some of the digital health companies that have exploded due to the pandemic, well, what happened? If you really peel back the onion, what happened was a lot of regulations and laws that are somewhat archaic because of where they were they broke down for about 12 months, right? Because you couldn't go in office. So you had to think through things like telemedicine and telehealth and all these different things. And a great story on this is before the pandemic started, a bunch of dentists, I talked to a bunch of these big DSOs, dental service organizations, they hated what we were doing, right? They said, you can't do this over telemedicine or at home. And and then as soon as the pandemic happened and they realized nobody could come into their offices, what were they doing? They were doing Google Hangout consults, Invisalign over Zoom, all these different things because it was interfering with their monthly income. Mm-hmm. Well, so then that wasn't only happening in oral care, it was happening with doctors and everything. I mean, I remember, you know, the big think tank up in Minnesota, the, the, I forget, I just, I always forget the name of the, the thing that he was on CNBC 
one morning. I was actually on after him on CNBC, but he talked about, you know, prior to the pandemic, they were doing maybe 50 calls a day through telemedicine, and now they were up to 5,000 and globally. And so you could just imagine like the access to healthcare that is being innovated on probably accelerated by five years and it's needed acceleration, right? We need to have different ways. I mean, I think we all always wondered why the doctor sets us up for an appointment and then we go wait in the waiting room for 45 minutes. Or it's just nearly impossible to get a doctor's appointment. It's nearly impossible to get a doctor's appointment. It's nearly impossible to get a dentist's appointment. When you get it, then you have to wait for 45 minutes to an hour. Like, Yeah, you you have to take time off of work. All these different things. They don't know the productivity loss on top of that. Plus like, okay, well, that takes time away from my family. Like, We need to become more efficient, right? And to be honest with you, you, like I use One Medical as my, my GP, my doctor. And that service is awesome. Like I have an app. I can schedule an appointment. I I literally can get it whenever I want with my doctor and I don't wait at all. I walk literally right in and I sit with him and I can, he already has all my information because I've typed him what's wrong with me. And in forward, there's some other guys that are doing the same thing. It's like, we're just beginning this transformation. And the biggest thing we, we need to do is we need to work with the regulators. We need to work with everybody to explain why this benefits consumers at scale, because they're looking at it from a very different lens, a historic lens of like protecting the money, protecting this and that. Quality of care. And- Quality of care. All those things can get done through remote monitoring, through some different stuff. And by the way, at a different scale. Mm-hmm. And and so it's just and early. Right, excessive. We're just early right now. We're working with every regulatory body, our competitors who we respect very much as well. Like we're all trying to advance this because we believe in the end, we can make dentists and orthodontists way more efficient as well. Like when do you hear from your dentist, right? Twice you hear from your dentist when you're in chair and then one week before you're in chair when the front office woman makes sure that you're still coming to your appointment, right? Yep. That's it. That's the only yep. time you hear from dentists. And dentists actually have the worst NPS, consumer NPS score, meaning like consumers don't really like them. They won't recommend them because they haven't built things like, well, remote monitoring or, or, or automated check-ins like, hey, Sean, you know, one month is our last visit. Everything okay with your oral care? Even if it's, even if it's a bot but it's the bot from the dentist. Like it'll make Sean feel good. Oh, hey, hey, Dr. Neeraj, I'm good. Teeth are going well. Thanks for the cleaning. Whoa, I'm building a camaraderie between the two through an app. Like that's great. And so when you come in the appointment and the dentist is always like, hey, how are you doing? How are your kids at that one appointment? But he doesn't care about me the other five and a half months. So I think what's happening with AI and technology, it's going to shift to more bedside manners and also remote manners, right? Like I love for, hey, you know, that tooth cleaning you did. So we're just in the first inning of this. And I don't know what's the solution here, but I want to be able to work with dentists and orthodontists, explain what our long-term goals are and mission is. If a dentist sitting in, let's say Irvine can now go from seeing 10 patients a day to doing 25 patients a day, you know, five in office, five in chair, six in chair. And then during their break, they're literally on their app, they're checking in on 10 others well, what ends up happening? Their revenue per square foot for that dental office goes up exponentially without them really wasting any more time, spending more time. So their dentists are always focused on dollars per minute. And this is like a great thing. So we have to educate a lot more about what the real goal is here. We want to make oral care more accessible to consumers at scale. We want to build technology and systems to allow that to happen. And we want to bring dentists and GPs and orthodontists into that platform in the long run so all sides win. It's not like there's not a, a zero sum game, like both mm-hmm. sides can win on this. Yeah. 
and that accessibility implications of that as a society are it's actually even more interesting there are not many black dentists there are not many hispanic dentists there are actually a lot of asian dentists but there are not a lot of black and hispanic dentists well why why is that well it's not in their communities but black and hispanic consumers would love to go to a black or hispanic dentist well, if you start bridging the gap here, what's going to happen? Like a young kid at high school or junior high that happens to be black or, or Latino will be like, oh, yeah, I love dentistry. I, I've been reading about it in our neighborhood. You know, my father used this, this platform. You're just going to start potentially an education process as well, where you're going to enrich the lives and enrich the focus of some of these different demographics and different cultures to start like looking up to caring. dentists and, and yeah, yeah. caring and, and studying, studying. I mean, like access and education. So that's like my meta vision and what I'd love to get done in the category, but you got to go through a lot of hurdles to get there. And the hurdles are not always easy to fight, right? The establishment without proper education and proper thing looks at us as, oh, you're just bypassing the dentist orthodontist. That's not what our goal is at all. We want to bring it. And that's why we were acquired by like the largest dental equipment company in the world. Yeah. I want to share this episode with all my banking analysts and buddies <laughs> and say, this is where you can end up, guys. <laughs> this is where you should end up. My last question is, what are you looking forward to as president and CEO of Byte? You know, I'm looking forward to the day where, you know, we continue to make this more accessible and more affordable globally. So I, I tend to always tell people that my mother is actually from a small village in India. And it'll be really nice one day, because by the way, our aligner manufacturing is... So, manufacturing of aligners and 3D printing is, is somewhat commoditized now, right? Like the technology is there, the ability to deliver it's there, and you got a global supply chain now. I would love for one day for a company, for a consumer or an Indian in her neighborhood, in her village, to get their teeth straightened by bite. Like that would mean me or we arrived, right? Like that would be a real, on the global, on the global platform. And so I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to spending more time with dentists and orthodontists and you know, explain it to I have a, a good childhood friend who's an orthodontist, an Asian guy who lives in the Bay Area, actually. And convincing them that this is a good idea is an interesting challenge because their business somewhat commoditizes as technology and stuff gets better and better, but they don't realize it. Then they have more access. They, they can make their services more accessible. And it might be less time because orthodontists love to golf on Thursday and Fridays and they love to use their time wisely. I mean, they're really well needed function, but I'm super, super excited about kind of bridging the gap and making sure they're all kind of understanding of the long-term mission and goals. I love it. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on, Naraj. This is just inspiring to hear a story. Well, Sean, hey, thanks for having me on. And all the Haas alumni here, you guys, we all picked a great school. It's, it really sets you up for a long-term foundation and the ability, and I think Sean mentioned earlier, the ability to be nimble in your career. Right? I mean, nobody would have expected me as a DLJ restructuring banker to eventually be a, a CMO of an internet, consumer internet auto company, and then the CEO of a consumer orthodontic company. So um, it's a Love great it. journey, and, and I wish you guys all success. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. <laughs>